0: We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman, and welcome again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church or seen the other way around, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. At my plan for today's show is to talk about another enthusiastic Jewish entrant into the Catholic Church. If you listen to the show a bit, you know that it's one of my favorite things to do is to either have other Jewish Catholic converts on the show or to give the stories and witness testimonies of uh, Jewish Catholics who are not available to be on the show, but perhaps have written their witness testimonies uh, in the past. And that's what I plan to do today today. Uh, the individual is a very notable, uh, almost a historical figure. His name is Carl Stern. Uh, he was a German Jew born in 1906. He passed away in 1975. He was one of the early psychiatrists, uh, a, um, an early Freudian psychiatrist and became quite notable in that field first as a neurologist and then a psychiatrist and, um, and but in the course of his uh early life he entered the catholic church or he he became convinced first that jesus was the messiah the jewish messiah and then that the catholic church was the um correct uh fulfillment of that so i i'm going to be reading today largely from his spiritual autobiography which is called the pillar of fire uh again the the uh man's name is Carl with a k k r k a r l Stern. Uh but before I read his account of his conversion let me begin with a very short biographical um summary. Carl Stern 1906 to 1975 was a German-Canadian neurologist and psychiatrist and a Jewish convert to the Catholic Church. Stern is best known for his account of his conversion in Pillar of Fire. Stern was born in the small town Ham in Bavaria in 1906 to socially assimilated Jewish parents. There was no synagogue or rabbi in the town, and although regular services and classes were held under the direction of a cantor, Stern's religious education was patchy. As a teenager, he sought to re-engage with the Jewish faith and began attending an Orthodox synagogue. But he soon became an atheist Zionist. He studied medicine at the universities of Munich, Berlin, and Frankfurt and came to specialize in psychiatric research. In the course of undergoing psychoanalysis himself, he regained belief in God and returned to Orthodox Jewish worship. He emigrated from Nazi Germany in 1936, finding work in neurological research in England and later as a lecturer in neuropathology and assistant neuropathologist at the Montreal Neurological Institute. In 1943, after much soul-searching and ultimately influenced by encounters with Jacques Mertin and Dorothy Day, Stern received baptism as a Catholic. Um, he continued working and died in Montreal in 1975. So that's just a very brief um, biographical outline, so you have a sense of where um and when Carl Stern had his experiences. And now, what I'm going to do is um, uh, read uh, passages from his spiritual autobiography, which are rather widely interspersed over the years of his life and conversion. So I'll be jumping um, significantly, you know, in fairly large strides through the book. Uh, as the short biographical note said, he was raised in a secular Jewish family. But what happened was there was no high school in the village where he lived. And um, students or, or children who showed some intellectual aptitude were sent to a larger town, in his case Munich, at about the age of 10 to, you know, go to middle school and then high school where there was one. And when Carl Stern was sent to Munich to to proceed with his education at 10 or 11, he lodged with an Orthodox Jewish family, the Coens. And so his first exposure to religious Judaism and his conversion first to Orthodox Judaism came about through his exposure to the Coen family where he was lodging as a student in Munich. So let me read an account of that phase of his life. The Cohen family belonged to the Orthodox Congregation of Munich, which had its center in a small, inconspicuous synagogue um, called the Canal Synagogue. The liberal congregation was by far the bigger one. It had a big, reformed synagogue in the center of the city. This synagogue resembled a big, fashionable Protestant church and contained an organ. The Canal Synagogue, however, was a simple gray house, hardly distinguishable, from the poor houses of the neighborhood. Contrary to the liberal synagogue, however, it was always full to capacity. There were assembly rooms and school rooms for children and adults in a side wing, and you could be sure that something was always going on. Moreover, the Orthodox families chose their dwellings near the synagogue, if only not to be forced to use vehicles on the Sabbath day, so that the synagogue became a living center the heart of the congregation. What attracted me as a child was not any particular detail of the doctrine, but the entire atmosphere. Take, for instance, the Sabbath. From the late afternoon on Friday to the first stars on Saturday evening, it was as if time and space had become a spiritual enclave. From the time when good tiny Frau Cohen put out the white linen with the solemn cutlery of silver and the candles until Saturday night, when the week was welcomed with a special ritual, there was an atmosphere of peace and enchantment. Life seemed to continue within a strange outer space in which it was subjected to laws different from those of the world. There were hundreds of little, seemingly senseless Talmudic precepts. You are not allowed to go on a vehicle to write to switch on any electric light. You are not supposed to even carry anything in your pocket, not even the key. This entire time enclave was used for service, for private devotions, for the study of the Torah and the rabbinical fathers. All these activities were interrupted only by game meals, Hebrew round songs, and occasional short walks. The the Munich Orthodox congregation was at that time under the leadership of old Rabbi Eintraub. Dr. Antrow was an extraordinary man of a type I had never encountered again in life. He looked as though Rembrandt had known him, a stooped, thin, old man with a long silver beard. I still see him leading the Sabbath procession of the Torah, wrapped in his prayer shawl so that only his face was visible. There was something non-physical about him. Whoever remembers him remembers the conspicuously high and broad forehead, and huge gazeless eyes, which seemed to behold something which was not visible. Although he confined himself to dry special questions of the Talmud, everyone felt the undercurrent of wisdom and goodness. Um, So this was his first exposure to serious religious judaism he just gave a very beautiful account of the kind of spiritual content of the sabbath which um which we can learn a lot from actually i uh, if i can interject a little personal note when i passed through a period of being uh, observant as a jew i wondered how anyone could maintain their sanity without observing the sabbath it was such a precious treat to have this this window in the week, this one-day period, where all of the all of the treadmills of the week, all of the activity associated with worldly pursuits, was put in abeyance, and this this oasis was created, which was just for, frankly, for God and family, um, and and the seemingly senseless Talmudic restrictions of of not being able to engage in any secular activity, not being able to use money, not being able to ride in a car, not being able to travel, not being able to turn on electricity, which, of course, included television or radio or anything like that, made this space kind of like this this um, love space for love and prayer, basically, which was occupied only by love and prayer for that uh, 26, 27-hour period. And he gave this beautiful description of that, And and then when his uh, time as a student in Munich was over and he returned home, he had become uh, an Orthodox Jew. So I will now proceed to later in his teenage years when he returns home to his non-observant Jewish family now as an Orthodox Jew. I began to live the life of an Orthodox Jew. I got up one hour before school time. And after having said the appropriate form of benediction, I wrap myself in the prayer shawl. Then, again with the prayers of benediction, I put on the tefillin. These are leather straps to which a capsule is attached. This capsule contains on a small parchment the famous biblical passage, Hear, Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Thou shalt love thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, and all thy power. It also says, Take my words well to your heart as a sign. Tie them to your hand and as a band between your eyes. Write them on your doorposts and on your doors. As a result, pious Jews the world over during morning prayer tie these words written on parchment onto their left wrist close to where one feels the pulse. A second capsule is tied to the forehead. Another capsule is permanently nailed to the door. After the tefillin have been put on, the morning prayer begins with the words, How beautiful are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy dwelling places, O Israel. Uh, he goes on to describe the, um, the content of the morning prayer, which is made up primarily of liturgical texts drawn from the Psalms. I will read two of the prayers that he cites from there. As long as this soul is in me, I thank you, Lord my God and God of my fathers, Master of all creatures, Lord of all souls. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who returns the souls to the dead. You who make the blind see, who clothes the naked, who frees the prisoners, who comforts those who mourn, who has made the earth so that it renders all that is necessary to man and also to myself. Lord of all the worlds, not on the grounds of any virtue of ours, but relying on your infinite mercy, but we, your people, the fellows of your covenant, the children of Abraham, to whom you have assured your love on the mountain of Moriah, we, the descendants of Isaac, his only son, who is offered to you on the altar, the community of Jacob, my firstborn son, whom you, out of love, has named Israel and Yeshurun. Chosen in love, carry out the will of their Creator. They open their mouths in purity and holiness in order to sing hymns and praise the holy name of God. Blessed be he. They all take up the yoke of the heavenly kingdom and sing with their Creator the holy song of praise. With a joyful mind, in pure tongues, and in holy devotion, they humbly say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord's Sabbath. All the earth is full Of his glory. I hope that, uh, that last prayer resonates, of course, with, um, our Catholic listeners, the, uh, the holy, holy, holy before the consecration. Um, anyway, then, um, uh, his, his family, when he had returned home to his, uh, secular Jewish family as an Orthodox Jew, thought he had gone nuts and had a very negative uh, reaction and actually called the family council and tried to intervene and uh, thought it was sheer insanity. Uh, Again, by the way, uh, as a personal note, um, at one point after I told my parents that I had become Catholic and I obviously took God and religion very seriously, my mother at one point confided to me that, she frankly would have been just upset if I had come home as an Orthodox Jew. In other words, um, she thought any form of taking God and religion seriously was uh, pathological, was was craziness. And he obviously um, met a simpler kind of response to his um, from his parents. So now let me skip forward to his conversion, which is really kind of the point of this story. Now, I have to skip forward uh about fifteen years. He has now gone through his medical training, gone to medical school and begun um work as a neurologist and at the uh medical institution where he worked, there were several there were three uh serious pious Catholics who he became friendly with uh their names were Frau Flam and a Japanese couple, the Yamagiwas. And although they never attempted to evangelize him or, or speak explicitly about religion, he was very struck by their um, by their goodness, by their peace, um, you know, by the, the inner recollection that they had and so forth. And at the same time, he was pursuing his uh, Orthodox Jewish life and engaging in Jewish religious study and uh, participated in a religious Jewish Bible study group. So I will recount um, some of his memoir that begins with what happened to him at one of those Bible group sessions. Again, let me interrupt myself. This is Roy shoman This is the show, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. And I'm telling the conversion story of a very notable other Jewish Catholic, Carl Stern, a German Jew in the middle of the 20th century, early part, the middle of the 20th century, a Freudian psychiatrist and doctor who became a fervent, um, fervent Catholic. Uh, and later on, I'll, I'll come to some parts where he discusses the continuity between Judaism and Catholicism. So, but now we're at the point where he is in his uh, probably late 20s as an Orthodox Jew involved in a Jewish Bible study. Um, Two things happened during that time which proved to be very important. One was a chance remark made by the young man who conducted our Sabbath afternoon Bible class. I think it was at that time when we discussed those particularly Messianic chapters of Isaiah. He said, You know, occasionally, when you contemplate these 2,000 years of dispersion without even any remote hope of return, you are almost inclined to wonder whether Jesus was not the Messiah after all. For, quote, Jesus, close quote, he used a dark word which Orthodox Jews occasionally use, perhaps out of some superstition. Of course, he discarded the thought, but it actually had occurred to him as something silly, but... As it happens with chance remarks, it stuck with me. My immediate reaction, perhaps already on the basis of my experiences, was, how do you know he wasn't? One evening in December 1933, I was walking through the streets of Munich, my heart full of the disquietude which accompanies spiritual journeys, and even more by the disquietude caused by the mounting persecution, when my eyes fell on a leaflet pinned on the notice board of a church it announced advent sermons to be preached by the cardinal on jewelry and christianity it had never been my habit to look at notice boards of churches in fact it was the first time in my life i looked at one since i had just been pondering that very moment about the question of jewelry and christianity i first had the feeling you have when you are deceived by what psychologists call an effective illusion however i believed what i saw and the following sunday Evening, my brother and I went to St. Michael's Hofkirk. There was an enormous crowd of people. We were pushed and carried to some place not far from the pulpit. I believe that most people came because they gathered from the title of the sermon that something was going on against the Nazis. This was a rare occasion, probably the first one of its kind. Let me just interject here. This event happened in December of 1933 in Munich. Um, uh Hitler's first rise to power, of course, came when he was in Munich. He became chancellor in January of that year, 1933. So it was the first wave, the first successful flush of, of the um, impulse of Nazism taking over Germany. And it's in that context that the Catholic Cardinal was giving a series of sermons on the relationship between the Jews and Christianity. So, in that context, this Orthodox Jewish man, Carl Stern, decided to go to the sermon. Now, returning to his words, At that time, the Nazis had not only started their onslaught against the Catholic Church and the confessional Protestants, but they had also made big strides in integrating Christian tradition into their system. This was not easy. The Old Testament had to be discarded as alien to the Nordic spirit, And Christ declared an Aryan and anti-Semitic in order to be acceptable to good society. It is difficult now to believe the extent to which these currents have penetrated into the minds of the intelligentsia and the middle-class city dwellers. Cardinal Fauhaber's sermon was actually very simple and unsophisticated. All he did was to clarify the birth certificate of Jesus and Nazareth. Excuse me. All he did was to clarify the birth certificate, of Jesus of Nazareth, who was a Jew in the flesh, and to reassert the oneness, the complete organic unity of the God of the Church and the God of the patriarchs and kings of Israel. He made only a few brief hints as to the preservation of the Jews after the resurrection. He referred to St. Paul's ideas on the subject as revealed in those famous chapters of the Epistle to the Romans. He also quoted Cardinal Manning, who, while preaching to the Jews in a synagogue, said, Gentlemen, where would we be without you? The sermon came as if it had been specially timed and written for my personal consumption. It had a profound, irrevocable influence on me. I remember well that, with the few meager hints he gave of the Paulian idea with regard to post-Christian Judaism, he opened up an entirely new vista. I felt like a child who had known its own house from inside and from the garden, and who has now, for the first time, shown it from far away as part of the landscape. Every Jewish child is taught that his religion is the mother religion of all monotheistic religions, and that this mother has given birth to two daughters, Christianity and Islam. The mother is older, and usually wiser and more venerable than the daughter, and it is somehow implied that the Christian sect is Judaism in a modified and somewhat diluted form. Here, in the church and during the sermon, in the midst of this extraordinary setting of Munich in 1933, I suddenly realized for the first time in my life that all things were not as static as all that. Did not the prophets imply that through the Messiah the word was to be carried to the farthest lands? There was no use denying that this had happened. Contemplate for a moment the fact that there had once been a tiny people at the periphery of the Roman Empire, submerged within an ocean of a thousand creeds, which jealously guarded the precious treasure of Revelation within the walls of its city. And here I was standing two millennia later, and listening to those who did not belong to Israel in the flesh, but defended the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses, Isaiah, and Job, as if their own lives were at stake. My first claim, my proud assertion, all that which had been an anchor in the storm of persecution, namely that the election was ours, seemed suddenly to be taken away from me. I will stop here and just kind of underline what he said. This is such a beautiful account of um, simply the inner honesty in some sense, which led him to consider the claims of Christianity the The first um, brick that fell as he describes it, was when his instructor in the in the Bible class pointed out that given the two thousand years of exile that happened to the Jews without a homeland, following the crucifixion of Jesus, you know, he just kind of wandered to himself. Sometimes it makes you wonder maybe Jesus was the Messiah. This by the way, was the same impulse that brought about the conversion of the Lehman brothers who I've talked about on other shows, that basically the dispersal of the Jews 2,000 years ago made them conclude that either Jesus had been the Messiah, but if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then the days of the Messiah, that the, day, the days when the Messiah could come had come and gone, and there was going to be no Messiah, so it was either Jesus or nobody. Uh, of course at this time, Carl Stern didn't go quite so far, but it stuck in his mind that perhaps the explanation for that 2,000 years of exile was that Jesus was the Messiah. And then he stumbled into this, um, uh, Cardinal's uh, sermon, by the way, Cardinal Faulhaber, is a very interesting figure, um, very notable, and he was, um, uh, uh, anyway, he he was in many ways a heroic figure, and he was steadfast against the persecution of the Jews in uh, Nazi Germany, although he wasn't steadfast against the um, Third Reich as a government, so it's a little bit of a, it turned out to be a little bit of an uh, ambiguous situation when you look back on it. From what we know today, but he was, he was very vehement against the persecution of the Jews. And in fact, he wrote, um, much of the encyclical that, um, was public, was, uh, put together by Pius XI and Pius XII with burning anxiety, which was a condemnation of the racism of the Nazis. But anyway, so Carl, Carl Stern stumbled on his, uh, sermon where he was really, in some sense, just preaching Christianity 101 that it was absolutely clear that Jesus of Nazareth was a Jew and the god of the church the christian god was the god of the old testament and as he quoted the other cardinal saying to the jews where would we be without you of course this is this is what we assume to be the relationship between christianity and judaism and the jews today but in the context of nazi germany it was a necessary reminder since the Nazis had tried to Aryanize Christ and and divorce him from his Jewish roots, divorce Christianity, in fact, uh, from the Old Testament entirely. Um, And so the Cardinal's sermon was obviously, um, uh, you know, squarely set against that. And, um, And then it made Carl Stern think about exactly what was going on here because okay here within the context of judaism the jewish revelation of two thousand years ago the jews were told that the 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 old testament prophets said that through the jews through the jewish messiah the word of god was to be carried throughout the world and so here carl stern is sitting two thousand years later and the word of god was carried throughout the world by christianity in other words by the um, repercussions of Jesus' life and death and the New Testament. So it seemed like that was, in fact, a fulfillment of the prophecy that through the Jewish Messiah, the word of God, the knowledge of the one true God was to be spread throughout the world. And um, so it just kind of, as he says, um, you know, everything, everything just fell together in that moment. That, um, and he saw things, he th- saw things, um, uh, clearly for the first time. So let me, uh, just now reread the last two sentences and go on with this, this, um, epiphany that he had after hearing the sermon. There was no use denying that this had in fact happened. Contemplate for a moment the fact that there had once been a tiny people at the periphery of the Roman Empire, submerged within an ocean of a thousand creeds, which jealously guarded the precious treasure of Revelation within the walls of a city. And here I was standing two thousand years later and listening to those who did not belong to Israel in the flesh, but defended the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses, Isaiah, and Job, as if their own lives were at stake. My first claim, my proud assertion, All that which had been an anchor in the storm of persecution, namely that the election was ours, seemed suddenly to be taken away from me. I must admit that I was caught up in a great inner turmoil and confusion. My first reaction during my earlier conversations with my Catholic friends had been pride. This pride was not very well defined, but it was approximately the idea, what would you be without us? Most Jews, conscious of their Jewry, have this vague sentiment at one time or another. The pride of the firstborn, the pride at the discovery that Christianity has emerged from Judaism, as if we allowed them generously, so to speak, to live on our heritage. All this is felt in a vague and ill-defined way. Now I was shaken out of my inner sureness by the following fundamental and indisputable facts. Firstly, There were two parties who unanimously and in perfect agreement maintained the racial wall around the God of Sinai. These were the Nazis and the Jews. Let there be no mistake. Jewish religion up to this day is based on the axiom that revelation is a national affair and that the Messiah to the nations has not been here yet. Do not be misled by the fact that Jews in their personal ethics are anything but exclusive and racist. Do not be misled by certain noble Talmudic principles such as the just of all nations have a share in the world to come. This latter idea has no bearing on the question discussed here. It deals with what Jewish antiquity was the, it deals with what to Jewish antiquity was the invisible church. Do not be misled by fine cosmopolitan sentiments and actions of reformed Judaism, which are often prompted by noble hearts but at the same time by much vague thinking and by a lukewarm dilution of the most profound and world-shaking elements of the Judaic treasure. No, there is no getting away from it. Revelation was still contained within this special vessel of the nation. I only had to look at our liturgy to see that this was so. Jewish religion was racial exclusiveness. Mind you, it was racial exclusiveness in its noblest and most elevated form, in its metaphysical form, so to speak. It was racism, it was a racism, exactly opposed to that of the Nazis, but it was racism just the same. It was racism with the highest divine justification, as long as its one basic premise was correct, namely, that the Anointed One was still to be expected. This is worth my going back over, although it is... uh, a little bit uh, controversial and certainly very politically incorrect. But throughout this spiritual autobiography, Carl Stern uh, meditates quite frequently on this kind of diabolical caricature between Nazi racism and uh, Jewish ethnic nationalism. Uh, to use his words, Jewish racism. Basically, there is a kind of diabolical caricature of Judaism. Of, well, let me let me back up. Um, obviously, before Jesus came, the uh, premise of Judaism, which came straight from God, was that Jews were a special people, uniquely privileged to be given uh, direct divine revelation in a way that no other people was given that direct divine revelation. So they were, in a very real sense especially chosen people, chosen by God for a special task and for which they should retain their um, separateness from other people. Uh, And this was dictated by God for the purpose for which they were chosen, which was to, of course, bring redemption to the whole world through the coming of the Messiah. So this Jewish racism, I'll use that word now in air quotes, this Jewish racism was legitimate because it was dictated by God, but it would only be legitimate if it were true that the Jewish Messiah had not yet come because the intention was, of course, for that restriction of God's revelation to the Jewish people to be done away with when the Jewish Messiah came and for the fullness of divine revelation to be given to all the peoples of the world through the coming of that Messiah. So that Jewish racism, now, in, now we're talking about 1933 when Carl Stern had this experience, that Jewish racism would have been excusable or even uh, divinely ordained in 1933 had Jesus not been the Messiah. But if Jesus was in fact the Messiah, then that Jewish exclusivity and that Jewish sense of um, separateness and of being special heirs to divine revelation would in fact be an unjustified ethnic chauvinism. And the um, and the Nazism, the, the, the racial superiority that he saw all around him expressed in the Nazism and the superiority of the Aryan race was kind of a diabolical caricature of that Jewish ethnic chauvinism that would have been legitimate, had Jesus not been the Messiah, but was no longer legitimate in the context that Jesus was the Messiah and that exclusivity had served its role and no longer, no longer, uh, had its role to play. As he said, um, uh, uh let me just now in that light reread those last two sentences of Carl Stern's. Uh, he talks about, uh, okay. Jewish religion was racial exclusiveness. Mind you, it was racial exclusiveness in its noblest, most elevated form, in its metaphysical form, so to speak. It was a racism exactly opposed to that of the Nazis. But it was racism just the same. It was racism with the highest divine justification, as long as its one basic premise was correct, namely that the anointed one was still to be expected. And uh, now I'll continue in his, with his words. Secondly, Jesus had not come as the founder of Christianity or of the, of the daughter religion. No, he had come first and foremost to us Jews with a claim of being the Messiah, the Son of the Living God. The question then was whether what he claimed to be, the question then, uh, let me start the sentence over again. The question then, whether he was what he claimed to be, still had to be answered with a clear yes or no. The question, in other words, Jesus did not come, and uh, this is me interpolating, Jesus had not come as the founder of Christianity. He had not come saying, I'm the founder of a new religion. He had come as, first and foremost, at, to the Jews as the Jewish Messiah, the son of the living God, right? That's the mantle he wore when he came. He didn't wear a mantle, you know, with a new flag saying, I'm here to start a new religion. He came carrying the flag, so to speak, of I am the Jewish Messiah. I'm the son of God. I am the Messiah of Judaism, who you guys have been waiting for. So the question, the fundamental question, which has to be asked and has to be answered with a clear yes or no, is was he what he claimed to be? Was he the Jewish Messiah or wasn't he the Jewish Messiah? Back to Carl Stern. Thus I found myself suddenly in what seemed to be very dangerous waters. Having grown up in a materialist world, having worked for years in scientific laboratories, a type of work in which an agnostic and materialist position was more or less implied, I had proudly restated, at least before myself, the absolute reality of the things of the spirit. The bold and defiant cry of the 17th century mathematician Pascal that God is, quote, not the God of philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, close quote, had become my own. And now, not long after the beginning of my journey, I was facing the eternal question, and who do you say that I am? What was even worse was the vague feeling in the back of my mind that this question had to be answered fully and without any possibility of evasion or compromise. There is a common German proverb, whoever says A must also say B. I had said A, and all of a sudden there seemed to be a B to it, and I had the dim notion that I might have to say it. So, basically, once he asked himself the question, he realized the implication was that he had to answer that question, he had to Answer the question: Was Jesus who he he said he was? Now I'll continue in his words. There was no getting away from it. If my Catholic friends were right, then I was wrong. For if the Messiah had come 1,900 years ago, then revelation was no longer enclosed in the precious vessel of the Jewish people, the people of peoples. Then the true bond between the four of us—that's between him and his Catholic friends was beyond the blood of the nation. It must have been provided by him. If they were wrong, then the Nazis were right. If they had falsely accepted the word of some obscure Jewish preacher of 1900 years ago as the word of God, then they were, as many of our Nazis believe, the victims of some monstrous fraud. Here you have a neat problem. Just try and let one of our scientists or historian sociologists solve it. It is one of those formidable either-or problems of Kierkegaard, one of those stinging questions which go on painting you in the depth of your existence until you have given a clear answer. There were times when I doubted my sanity. Everywhere around me I saw people who were wiser and better than I and who did not see what seemed to me the essential alternative. Here I was, one of my people in the middle of the most dreadful persecution we had ever suffered, and like a faint shadow, the possibility arose of leaving this community of destiny. This seemed madness. It seemed madness the more since it was my natural urge to stay with those with whom I was born to suffer. Was the swastika not a modification of the crucifix under whose sign we have been tortured before? This is what it seemed to be if one took history on the natural plane. Perhaps all this was a build up carefully framed by my subconscious to camouflage and escape from Jewry. I was was easily able to dismiss this thought because I saw that during persecution, it was only the race that counted. Christian Jews did not fare better than their brethren. On the contrary, they often fared worse because socially and politically, they frequently belonged nowhere. So I will just go back and, and backfill a little bit about what he just said. Here he sees this, the, the, the critical existential alternative, basically, was Jesus who he said he was? Was Jesus the Messiah of the Jewish people? And of course, he had an inkling that the answer might be, yes, he was, which then faced him with the, or the, with that, he faced the dilemma of, was he what a time would this be to turn his back on his people, in other words, to leave this Jewish community of destiny by becoming Christian. There, there were a number of uh, very notable, by the way, uh, Jews who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah around the time of the Holocaust who never were baptized, who never took the final step of entering the church for exactly this reason, even though they believed in Jesus and they believed In Christianity, they did not want to separate themselves from the Jewish people at that time in history. Uh, Simone Weil is an example of that. I believe Franz Werfel was an example of that. Um, uh, And some others whose names escape me at the moment. So uh, Carl Stern suffered that dilemma also. For Carl Stern, the dilemma was resolved when he realized that... um, even were he to become Christian, it would not separate him from the destiny of his people because for the first time in history, the persecution of the Jews under the Nazis was not dependent at all on on faith or on faithlessness in Christianity, but was purely a matter of race. And In fact, the Jews who did convert at the time of the Nazis were often the worst off because Um, they did not gain any favor needless to say with the nazis they were treated as jews by the nazis but they were excluded from the jewish community and treated as enemies by the jewish community so they had lost you know they had they had uh, made enemies of both sides so to speak and when he realized that it left him free so to speak to go where where his um inner conviction was leading him uh, and now I'll go on with his um some of his meditations on on this issue of of um of what it means for a Jew to be converted to Christ. by the way, I realize at this point um I, that I will not finish reading from uh, um Carl Stern today, so I will go as far as I can and uh next week probably do Carl Stern part two. It does have a very happy ending, by the way. Um, he becomes a very uh, very notable, enthusiastic, and in some ways influential Catholic. Anyway, going on with Carl Stern. The great German Lutheran writer, Ric- Ricarda Hook once remarked that for Jews to become converted to Christ means an extraordinary sacrifice. Not only, says she, must the individual die with him in order to live, it is the whole people that must die with him. By some mysterious twist of faith, the Jews are the only people which cannot remain a people and be Christian at the same time. Christ extolled a double sacrifice from his people. Not only the individual Adam has to die to be dissolved in him, the group too has to be dissolved. This is one of the most profound remarks ever made on the so-called Jewish problem. It touches the very center of it. The Jewish contemporaries of Christ who rejected him knew that by accepting him, they would sacrifice the nation. The one and only condition under which they would have accepted him, he had to refuse. He could not be their national leader, and this in spite of the imminent danger from outside. This was a superhuman demand, it seems, a natural right of every nation to defend itself in times of danger. In the case of the Jews, the word of the, quote, seed that falls into the ground, referred not only to the individual, but to the group. The Jews maintained the idea of racial integrity at a time when it had lost its transcendental meaning, for all was fulfilled in Christ. If death, as Berdyayev expresses it, gives meaning to life, here the ultimate death of a nation will give meaning to its life. But before that happens, our people is condemned to live on as some sort of a ghost representing the idea of racism. Wow. Okay. I don't know if I can do justice to this by trying to explain it, but clearly he is making the observation that um, those incredibly profound words of Christ that, uh, you know, unless a seed falls into the ground and is destroyed, it bears no life, and it's in the death of the seed that it fulfills itself and brings forth life. And similarly, unless a man dies to himself and is born in Christ, he does not produce life. He must die first in order to be fruitful. Now, that truth of the individual, that the individual Adam has to die to be dissolved in Christ, is true in a national way in the in in the sense of the entire Jewish people that the Jewish people find themselves in this unique situation where the Jewish nation as a nation the Jewish people as a people has to die as a people has to go into the ground and dissolve in order to bring forth life and it's the dissolution of the Jewish people as a separate people that brings about the fullness of the fruition of their mission, which, uh, as we know from St. Paul, actually will mean the second coming, <laughs> um, that, um, uh, that it's actually, that the final conversion of the Jews is very closely associated with the second coming itself. So the Jewish nation as a whole has to undergo this death to self as the individual Christian has to undergo the death to self to be born in Christ in order to be fruitful. The Jewish nation has to undergo the death to self to be ultimately fruitful, which will be the full, the full realization of redemption, the second coming. Wow. Um, the, um, so i will i will continue the next few minutes i guess on this theme from the writings of carl stern and i will not get to his baptism or his conversion unfortunately but i i think it's it permeates these writings anyway this touches closely upon the secret of why jewish shortcomings are hated more than those of other people because the physical existence of the Jewish people is, from the point of view of the metaphysics of history, in incongruity. The Jews are here, they are living, whereas the ultimate meaning of their existence as a people is that it should transcend itself. This is perhaps the reason why not infrequently Jews who approach Christ struggle more against his final embrace than anyone else. In all those Jews whom I saw approaching the church and remaining with one foot on the threshold— There is, besides a thousand natural obstacles, besides the fear of cowardly betrayal, besides the anxiety of isolation, something else. There is a seemingly invincible horror, something which reaches deep down beneath the social and biological strata of the personality, something that seems to arrest the pulse and make the blood curdle in the veins. There is a cosmic fear, a panic of death and dissolution. It is as though the agony of a people were compressed into the space of an individual existence, as if the agony of all peoples were contained in the night of Gethsemane. This is where being and becoming reach those timeless spheres which are contained in history. According to the biogenetic law of Heckel, the embryo's development is a condensed and rapid version of the development of the species. In a similar manner, every Jew who is conscious of his Judaism and is converted to Christ goes in his lifetime through the spiritual destiny of his race. Hence this particular intensity and agony of development. Hence this profound anxiety, which is nothing but primeval fear of death and of birth. I think it is ultimately on the basis of this fear that we can explain some of the paradoxical attitudes, the writhing movements which we witness in people like Franz Werfel. Read this passage written not long before his death. The Jew who goes to the baptismal font deserts Christ himself, since he arbitrarily interrupts his historical suffering, the penance for rejecting the Messiah, and in a hasty manner not foreseen in the drama of salvation steps to the side of the Redeemer, where he probably does not at all yet belong, according to the Redeemer's holy will. At any rate, not yet, and not here, and now. This is what the panic of a total eradication will do to our thoughts. We all go through these and similar mental contortions before we have torn up all our earthly roots and let ourselves fall into the space, into space and into the great embrace. So I have pretty much come to the end of our time together today. Um, this is incredibly deep. I, I'm not sure that I can really add much to these words, but It is a a repetition of the previous point that he made that the Jew who embraces Christ, who comes to Christianity, is going through a kind of a a double death, um, the death of his own personal Jewish identity. But he's participating in the dissolution of the Jewish people, the death of the Jewish people. And the um, meaningfulness of the identity of the Jewish people was put there by God for their role in bringing about salvation. And yet it's in, it's in exactly that unique ethnic role that they were given that they're being called upon to undergo this second death as a people in uniting themselves with Christ, in, in entering into the body of Christ by becoming Christian so I hope I hope that I have at least planted some some interesting uh seeds of thought to uh with which to think about the relationship between Judaism and Christianity and to think about the conversion of the Jews and perhaps even to inspire a little prayer for the conversion of the Jews and I look forward very much to continuing um next week with a continuation of the thought of the notable Jewish convert to Catholicism Carl Stern and his meditations on the transition between Judaism and the Catholic Church. So with that, it's come time to say goodbye for now, and I hope you join us again next week on Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.